Kindness Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean, and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who helps me unpick these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by author, broadcaster, and educator, Jeffrey Boacci. After a stint in education, where Jeffrey taught English to 11 to 18-year-olds for 15 years, he now provides training for schools, universities, and businesses on race, identity, masculinity, and education. He's a senior teaching fellow at Manchester Institute for Education, and he has published loads of books, including Hold Tight Black Masculinity, Millennials and the Meaning of Grime, Blacklisted Black British Culture Explores, What is Masculinity? Why Does It Matter? And Other Big Questions, Musical Truth, A Musical History of Modern Black Britain in 28 Songs, and I Heard What You Said. Jeffrey's also a broadcaster presenting BBC Radio 4's Add to Playlist with co-host Keris Matthews. Jeffrey, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me on. Seriously, thank you for inviting me. It's great. Um, I wanted to ask you, I was listening to you on a podcast, uh, Dope Black Dad's podcast, actually, um, a little bit earlier. Uh, and you were talking about you were, you're, you're uh, raised, born and raised in Brixton. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Southwest London. I don't Southwest. know what that says about me, but like, as, as I get older and I keep navigating these social media streets, I realise that I've got a bit of that South London in me. I, I'm not sure what that means, but I've got it in me. You know? Well, I think, yeah, it's South London is its own thing for all non-Londoners. <laughs> yeah, South London is its own, it's its own world. It's the own ecosystem. So, <laughs> um, I think South London does mean something. I'm not exactly, I'm probably like you, yeah, I'm not entirely sure what it does mean, but yeah. it means something. How would you say that growing up in Brixton has shaped you as a person? Yeah, I mean, Brixton's a site of historical significance when you're talking about the Black British story, quote unquote, because it's where a lot of, you know, early 20th century migrants from different parts of the colonies, that's what we're talking about here, ended up. You know, you had Notting Hill, you had Brixton, you had other parts of London. So I, I, I grew up surrounded by communities from the diaspora, particularly Caribbean communities. So even though I'm from West Africa, my parents are from Ghana, and that's a whole culture, that's a whole community in itself. I was surrounded by like Jamaican culture, you know, Trinidadian culture. And that has been a, such a big part of black Britishness that I was kind of getting an education in that whilst having my, you know, my Ghanaian British dual heritage upbringing at home. And I think that's important because a lot of time people think about blackness and they just think about this monolithic thing, like it's this blackness, but it's not, it's varied, it's complex, it's textured. And so I was getting that curriculum, you know, in other kinds of blackness from birth. And I didn't realize it at the time. It was just, I just thought this is what the world is like. So I think that, yeah, that those histories were kind of in the riverbed of my upbringing, you know, the conflicts with mainstream society, the law, you know, the protests and uprisings, all of that was happening as I was growing up. So it must have seeped in somehow, yeah. And I mean, a couple of things come up. I mean, you um, talked about kind of growing up in, in Brixton in the 90s, um, mm. 
Uh, apart from obviously, um, uh, you know, the the a lot of cultural shifts have happened since then. But one of the big ones that obviously comes up for places like Peckham or Brixton um, in Southwest London would be, or South London would be, mm. the issue of gentrification and the yeah. way in which neighbourhoods have changed. And I know that a lot of these conversations are often quite superficial, in my opinion. They're often just sort of saying, well, you know, <clears throat> a load of middle class people moved into the area, prices have gone up. And obviously, there's a wider context to all of these things, which is, you know, the communities then being pushed out, communities mm -hmm. not being able to afford where they live, um, uh, centres that would otherwise have been dedicated to co community um, support then turning into uh, you know a fancy gym or a, a flying yeah, yeah. yoga store or um, but but I wanted to ask your thoughts on on that and and kind of how you think of gentrification in relation to whiteness yeah I mean it's a manifestation of the aggressiveness of privilege you know that's what gentrification sort of uh, symbolizes for me because you have to think, well, why is it a thing? Why is it desirable to live in these places? Because they're economic centers, right? They're socioeconomic centers, they're hubs, it's where money is. And a lot of this stuff comes back down to money, which is a proxy for power. So if you want to live in proximity to certain jobs, industries, professions, sectors, where money resides, have property that is literally worth more than other parts of the country, then obviously that's the level of like social privilege that's gonna be tied to identity politics and to whiteness, because the gentrification story is linked to race, you know, and class. So you get a certain ethnicity, a certain tribe of people who have got this economic power, because you need money to live in places like Brixton now. You know, like the deposits are too expensive for most of us to afford. If you look at, you know, the average salaries in the country, you need that kind of social privilege as well to enter these tribes where you fit in. And that's where the identity politics come into play. You have to look a certain way, sound a certain way, have certain jobs and so on and so forth. So it's it's, it's a very aggressive kind of privilege because most people can't afford to, to just choose to live in proximity to power. They just can't. And that's why the, the flip side of gentrification, where those communities end up being, is like the exact, it's the exact photographic negative. They get pushed out of the city. They end up further afield. In some cases, they get pushed out to other like parts of the country completely, you know, and I'm not just talking about Croydon, it's like off to Wales. So communities are being disbanded and broken down. And again, identity politics, poorer people, uh, black and brown people, people, you know, of the wrong ethnicity in terms of proximity to power. So it's it's like a little sub story of a wider story of of power politics linked to identity identity you know and in in yeah and i've i've seen it up up close because i can't afford to live in brixton weirdly like I, I suppose i could try but it's 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 not easy and a lot of the people that i knew growing up in brixton have moved out family and friends and can't afford to move back in so there's something going on there which is which is uh concerning if you want to use that that polite euphemism <laughs> And I know, um, for sure, and I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, a lot of people listening might say, well, because um, I think this is often the discussion that comes up, is, well, these are these are just economic outcomes of, you know, um, the cost of living. I mean, you know, even middle class families are going to start saying, well, you know, we can't afford to live in. And this is probably very true. You know, if your parents are born in, I don't know, Ealing, can mm. you afford a house in Ealing? Probably you couldn't. So yeah, yeah. you're also then looking at poor areas. So where 
it, to people who would say, well, this is this is an economic problem, not mm. a race problem. Mm. Could you help us understand, like, how where does race fit into the gentrification picture? And and, and I mean, I guess Brixton is a really good example, um, not least because of what um, a cultural hub it yeah. was and a center of, of power. And I think it continues to be. I wouldn't want to diminish that. I think it still is. But mm. um, how, how, where, where does the race element come into that conversation for you? Yeah, it's really simple. It's that you can't separate race politics from economics. These things have been intertwined forever. Like I'm talking about since the birth of race as a concept as applied to people. That's like the 1660s. This has been a way of economically, you know, being superior. That's what transatlantic slavery did. That's what scientific racism offered in that moment of transatlantic slavery and colonialism. It was economic exploitation, right? And so the systems that we're dealing with, the very systems of society, are kind of shrouded in these racialized politics. And what I mean by that is that, well, you can look at the stats. It's pretty easy to see who's doing what jobs. I go up and down the country and most black and brown people I see working are doing things like cleaning, security guards, um, delivery, you know, like manual labor. Um, that's an economic trend because there's no other reason for that to become like, you know, so, so visible other than that structurally certain groups have been denied opportunity, denied privilege, if you want to call it that. So if you go back to gentrification, I just think about who is precarious and who's not. Because one of the biggest things, and I, like, I'll just be honest with you, like, it, it bugs me for years now, it's been bugging me how precarious the position of like black and brown people are, even in professional spaces, even when success has happened. You know, someone like, let's just pick a figure, Matt Hancock, all right? Matt Hancock or Gavin Williamson, any of these dudes in that tribe that run the country, they can fail upwards. They just fail upwards continually. No matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, Boris Johnson, you know, running the country into the ground in certain ways, um, just not doing their job well enough, being held to account and being found out to be like not good professionally, they go home. And they go home and eat toast and sit on money and they're fine. Their position is not precarious. For many other groups of people, the position is so precarious. If it goes wrong, you're done. There's no generational wealth to fall back on. You haven't got a grandparent that's going to give you, you know, a few K when you need it. You haven't got a legacy of just like support within society to hold you and protect you. So class, economics identity politics all of these things are completely interlinked and if anyone's thinking well that's a reach or like i'm like trying to find problems where there aren't just look at the tribes that run the country look at the actual makeup of these people and it's not an accident they come from one place and historically they come from one place that's by design um and that's the thing which is maddening to me because there are a lot of people out there who 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 just haven't got that support haven't got that safety and when it goes wrong for for the rest of us we just disappear and no one even notices because we were barely there to begin with oh it's deep <laughs> um i wanted to ask you off the back of that actually about your work in education because i think that's a really uh, clear example of um 
you know, when support networks fail, um, yeah. life lives can be dramatically altered uh, very mm-hmm. quickly. And um, obviously, you spent a long time working in the educational centre. There's a lot of talk these days about reforming education, decolonizing mm. education. Um, before we get into that, can you tell me about some of the ways in which you felt like you saw whiteness show up in the classroom, in the staff room, yeah, in yeah. education more broadly? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, for the most part, because remember, I've been in education system since I was like, like most people, four or five years old, right? You're just a fish in water. So you don't question water. And you don't realise just how white education is. Like most of the teachers that taught me, in fact, all of my teachers up until I met the only black teachers ever taught me were white, right? And I grew up in Brixton in the 80s and 90s. That's unusual when you think about it. There's a lot of black people in Brixton. It's a cultural hub. And yet there were no black teachers in my primary school, none in my secondary school, apart from the one English teacher who I met who's from Uganda. So there's a pervasive whiteness there, which means that, well, it's one of two things. Either for some reason, black people can't or won't enter education as a profession. All right. So that's one option. Or two, the system is not safe for black and brown people. So they don't enter it because they can't. And when you look at the trends in terms of exclusions and things like that, you know, like it's no accident that your most excluded groups in society in terms of education don't go back into education. You know, the most excluded group would be like the um, would be like the traveller community, you know. And I've only ever taught like a handful of children from the traveller community and I've never met any educators from that community. They exist, but... That is not the traveller community's fault. That is the system's fault. It's the same with any other underrepresented group. So I've I've sort of like gone through that without questioning it until I got to a point when I had to question it. And for me, that was as I got further and further up the rungs of the ladder. And it wasn't until I got to like sixth form and I was like the only black person in my year group. I went to sixth form at Wimbledon College. Um, this is quite leafy. It's an affluent area, Wimbledon, you know, tennis and pims. Um, and it's like, I realized at that point, what's going on here? Why am I so underrepresented in this space in a quote unquote good sixth form? And that's when you start realizing. And then everything from that point on has been kind of active research and thinking, well, what is going on here? Why am I one of one in allegedly the most multicultural, you know, hub in the country if not one of the most in the world so yeah i feel like i feel like whiteness is a default and that itself is actually quite an aggressive act i've used that word a few times but to make yourself or for one for for something to position itself as the norm is is a real power play and for it to not be questioned is almost like bullying because it's like you don't even think to question why. Every day we should be questioning the fact that all of our prime ministers have looked and sounded a certain way for hundreds of years. Like, that's not right. There's something going wrong there, but it's established itself as a norm, so it's not questioned, you know? Why have we had all these prime ministers from, like, two schools when those two schools cannot be producing the best thinkers to run the country? So there's something going wrong there. So I think that education, yeah, it's... um, I've relatively recently been actively exploring this you know I say relatively recently I mean like you know 10 years really thinking hard which is what the last book was about but yeah I've kind of drifted away from your question slightly but 
that's that's, that's the way that I've been navigating it. And and how do you? Because obviously, the when when we talk about normativity in any mm. space, and particularly like white normativity as an unspoken standard, uh, and that that being kind of at the heart of whiteness, really. Um, I guess I had two questions. One is how comfortable are you with the term, uh, which I feel like a lot of people in the UK balk at. In the States, my experience is a bit different, but mm. white supremacy, like a white supremacist system. Yeah. Yeah, um, because yeah. when I hear, you know, uh, the normativity of one group being the most salient, the unquestioned, what I hear is a form of supremacy. You know, if I applied that 100%. to gender, if I applied that to, you know, um, being able-bodied, you know, that yep. we never never even considered that, you know, that seems to me a supremacist mindset and I don't, but how do you feel about the term and kind of the use of the term in the UK? I think we need to bring it back. I feel like we need to say it. Um, I've I've been at conferences, like anti-racism conferences, and I've been waiting like bingo to hear someone say white supremacy. People don't say it. And when people do say it, it's like Voldemort in Harry Potter, like it really he, is. he who shall never be named. Yeah. That is such a power play because it means that the actual thing you're talking about has got you in such a vice that you can't say it because something's gonna happen to you if you say it, right? So now you're policing yourself because white supremacy is not a controversial thing. It is a statement of fact. It is the supremacy of the thing that's been called whiteness as racialized since about 1661 for certain aims, facts, right? People have now t turned it into, into an accusation of racism when actually saying white supremacy exists is like saying Monday is the first day of the week, you know, that comes before Tuesday. It's just a statement of fact. And actually, um, the big job is to like, to see it for what it is, to say it, and then to reconcile one's own complicity in a white supremacist system. In the same way that me as a man, right, I participate in sexism by existing as a man. It blows people's minds when I say that. They don't like people go, what are you saying? You're saying that you're sexist or that all men are sex. I'm saying, no, I'm saying that I participate in sexism by existing as a man by being, you know, uh, by being constructed according to the rules of masculinity, and I abide by those rules, so I participate in sexism. And actually, yes, I do participate in misogyny because masculinity is linked to misogyny. And I need to realise that in dismantling masculinity, criticising it, destroying it, I'm not destroying myself. I owe it nothing. I owe masculinity nothing. White people need to understand they owe whiteness nothing. So you can take it apart. Like, I've got whiteness in me. I say this all the time, and it blows people's minds. Like, what are you talking? I was like, we 1982 I was born in Great Britain. Of course I've got whiteness in me. Like, I do all the other things that white people do. I've grown up in a white paradigm. Like, I've, I've had a queen just like you, you know? So I can, I, but I can sit with the fact that I can challenge whiteness. And the only reason I can challenge whiteness with impunity is because my skin is black. And so no one thinks it's weird, right? White people can challenge whiteness with impunity too, because, mate, you're not white. Like, it doesn't exist. It was made up. But it's been bred into us to be so closely wedded to these constructs that to attack them is to attack yourself. That's where the fragility and the aggression comes in. It's pretty mm. simple, really. Well, I wanted, so I really wanted to ask you about that when you were saying, because it's connected to what you've just said earlier, you were saying that, 
obviously you at one point were the only young black man at your sixth form and you're looking around this classroom and you're thinking to yourself like Mm -hmm. oh this isn't right but like were any of the white people thinking this isn't right and if not how did it make you feel that that wasn't at least obvious or in question or um uh, apparent maybe yeah 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 to, to other to, to your classmates to your yeah, friends yeah. right exactly exactly who knows man it's like first of all when something is taboo like genuinely taboo, it is actually taboo like people don't talk about it you know I've had very very young children look at me and my son and ask their parents like why are they brown in that cool stage whisper that kids use and then the response from the parents is so interesting because at that point, it's a learning opportunity. It's a chance to just like say, well, you know, a lot of people in the world look like that. Open a geography book for crying out loud, like crack open Wikipedia. But in that moment, I've seen parents just shut the conversation down and then just bundle the kid away from the conversation. So a lesson has been learned there. You know, you're teaching that kid, when yeah. you talk about the color of people's skin, you know, this thing called race, something's gone wrong you can't talk about it yeah you might have taught that kid there's a problem with people who are black and brown because we just do not talk about it so Mm. when I'm sitting there at school at college and I'm the only black person there it's not been referenced it's like the Voldemort thing again no one's saying oh but Jeffrey's black how does he feel about or there are things happening in the subtexts you know there are certain you know kind of conversations or people reaching out in interesting ways assuming certain things about me or curious about me because they've never had a black friend you know so all that's happening but it's all kind of it's all under the surface it's no one is managing that conversation there are no adults managing that conversation (laughs) like you and me are talking about adults talking about white supremacy like adults right mature people that can look with distance on the world Mm. cool no one's doing that when I'm 18 years old the head of year isn't going, let's have a conversation about racism because we have a racial diversity. Like, who's even talking about that? So then you're leaving people to work out for themselves, you know? But, but, but so two things there. One is, do you feel that that shaped your own feeling of your space in the world? Because mm. I would imagine, and obviously I can only imagine, but it would, the, it would be very isolating to feel like your something so central to your life is ignored. Yeah. I'm going to use the word ignored, but I'm not even sure that's the right word. Is it ignored? Is it possibly minimized? Is minimized, it um, unacknowledged, ignored? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, kind of rendered taboo, right? Yeah. Rendered taboo yeah. by the fact that it can't even be raised. And these are the people that are meant to be caring for you, the people who are your friends. Like, how do you feel like that impacted you as a young man, kind of? vis-a-vis in terms of your sense of your own self vis-a-vis society yeah I mean I'm I'm in I'm incredibly kind of idiosyncratic you know I'm like in the 90s I was a prototype hipster like I was always trying to be alternative I was and I think it's because I I worked out from very very young that if you're going to be like different and your your supposed kind of like group are not going to be there because remember, I went to secondary school with a lot of black kids from all over the place, lots of African kids, lots of Caribbean kids, you know, um, and then suddenly there are no black kids. So I always, always led with 
like my own quirks, my idiosyncrasies. I was always doing things that I was interested in. And I know what I'm like. I've got like a lot of energy and I've got, a, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like bright, you know, so people gravitate towards that. Like, whoa, like who is this person? And I'm doing things that I want to do. I'm dressing ways that I want to dress. I was always a bit quote unquote different, but it was kind of deliberately so. If I psychoanalyze it, it's clearly a defense mechanism because when you don't fit in anywhere, you make a virtue of being different. But I didn't make myself different in the way people expected me to be different because I wanted to actually be different. So I didn't come out ultra black, even though I was seriously black. Like I had a whole curriculum of life that was black, like the music, the culture, the food, the places, the conversations. I was having conversations about racism with like my sisters and like, you know, my sister's friends and writing articles for magazines and stuff when I was 17. But I wouldn't bring that to the table necessarily in my day to day. So on the one hand, you're just kind of living this parallel existence. And then my closest friends, it was always about me personally, like Jeffrey is a person. That's the first thing that my friends would connect with. But then on the other hand, I'm like deliberately sort of not raising these issues. Mm. And that is clearly for my own personal safety. Yeah. Because you know that, you know, if you go out all guns blazing, put yourself your head above the parapet and you, there's no one that looks like uh, uh, like you, you're kind of thinking, okay, I'm going to end up also not being here. It's, mm. it's just not safe. So, yeah. And to um, bring back that story of the parent with a child, which, you know, is going to be an experience that a lot of people of colour, a lot of people who like wear a hijab or a turban mm -hmm. or just look, look in any way, quote unquote, different. I mean, I'm, you know, use the term with slight caveat, because depending on where you live in London. Yeah, like, yeah I mean, but but what would you have preferred that conversation to have been how would you you know if anyone's listening to this and they do have a kid that does that yeah. you know, what, what would you say to them would be a better way to respond well the first thing is like you know you you need to clock how you're feeling in that moment if you feel a sense of panic it's because you're so ignorant of facts that you don't know what to say and that leads to panic because everyone wants to be able to say the right thing to their kids so you need to clock that and realize there's a gap in your knowledge you want to fill that gap. So really, it's just a case of, you know, very, very simple, benign things. Like, yeah, lots of people in the world look like that. There are parts of the world where people have this kind of skin and that kind of skin. And, you know, there's this thing called race and we use these words to describe it. It's just like the very simple basics of describing a situation. Um, and then, you know, without going as far as kind of like... Um, fetishizing like say doesn't he look beautiful you might say that that's a bit that's a bit much but you you might just say yeah and don't you think that it's amazing that we've got these various skin tones in the world and then again crack open that book but boom that's the problem a lot of these parents haven't got that book at home mm. they haven't thought about it they haven't challenged what's been fed to them they just you know they, they've just learned what they've been taught which is such a limited and myopic and 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 just like short-sighted view of the world that they don't even know that there are other perspectives to offer their own children and that's when the panic sets in and all they do know is i'm not racist i'm not racist i'm not racist and so short of saying don't be racist they just have a bit of a meltdown so yeah start with some knowledge i guess 
Yeah, I think the the fear of being perceived as racist has got to be like the dominant paradigm yeah. occupying most white people's psyche. Oh my god! Um, totally. <laughs> Um, and and I and I and I get it because obviously you don't want to be like no one wants to be racist, but I guess it's like well, you know, this is the world we live in, and um, I also find the opposite of it, which you know you find in anti-racist circles a lot, sometimes a little bit too flippant, like well, we're, well, well, we're all racist. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. we're all in a racist system, uh, and I guess to that extent, like to use your misogyny, uh, yeah. you know, parallel, yes. Um, but you know, uh, is how, how helpful is that? It's a little bit like yeah. we're all something, so none of us are that. I don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. Haven't caught, Yeah, quite. I mean, it's a, a part of that latter situation you just described. People just kind of flippantly saying, "Yeah, but you know, this is what the world is, and we're all that." That's just lazy. You know, it's very lazy because there is work to be done. This is what this is what people don't understand. Like, I sit here, you know, I'm like forty, and you read out my CV, sounds impressive. It's good. Like, I can't lie. I'm like, yeah, I'm doing bits, right? Um, none that's by accident. Like, I'm not born with innate knowledge of race and race theory. This is just learning. And it's not just what I've learned in terms of writing books and having these conversations and attending seminars and connecting with other people. It's about the lifelong lived experiences of learning. There's extra work being done by people who are marginalised across the, across the spectrum, you know? If you are not able-bodied in an able-bodied world, you are doing extra work just to get through. If you're gay in a heteronormative world, you're doing extra work just to navigate it. So you're learning extra stuff, like extra lessons, right? While people are at home eating toast, you are actually learning about homophobia every second of your life. So I've been learning about racism every second of my life growing up in this country. So of course, I'm like super powered up. I've, I've just got more stuff in my head. But but that work is accessible to everyone, you know, and and this is the thing that bugs me because I'm energized by learning. That's why I got into teaching and I'm energized by the empowerment that comes with that. It maddens me to think that people are just happy to sit back and not be energized by this, you know. Um, but I can see why that is because, because you know, it's easy. But yeah, um, yeah, sorry. I, the, one sorry, like, go just, on. Yeah, just this thing about the fear. The one yeah. phrase that I've heard the most of all since I started going to schools and businesses and stuff is I'm scared of getting it wrong. That's the phrase I hear most of all. And I'm like, so you're so scared of getting it wrong that you're not going to act on what you know to be right. So believe it or not, that's why I started this podcast because I felt like somebody needed to say, I might get it wrong, but I'm still going to do it. (laughs) Oh yeah, listen. We so, all should know that by now, that life yeah. is just a whole bunch of peril. Like, of course. Yeah. And of we, course we're we get all it getting wrong. it wrong all the time in loads of areas. So, I mean, I, I feel like one of the things you discover as you learn more um, about kind of the, I'm going to call it anti-racism world, but I, I really also object to that because I feel like that still centers like Euro patriarchal worldview. Mm and then like unpicking that worldview rather than what I actually think we're referring to which is decentering mm. the Europatriarchal experience and understanding that there are so many other ways of thinking about the world about the self about the spirit about the mind about you mm-hmm. know about, about the world you know yeah, yeah. Uh, um and that in a way it's also uh you know 
I, I'm going to use the word ignorant, but but not everyone's ignorant, of course, in some mm -hmm. ways. But I mean, like in in an almost like um, this is where the power and the supremacy comes in. You can afford to be ignorant yeah. of those places, of those systems, yeah. of those ways of thinking. Yeah. Whereas the reverse is not true. Yes. And uh, because not understanding how a white supremacist system works is too dangerous for yeah. uh, obviously marginalized groups from that. Um, but yeah, I think the fear the fear of getting it wrong is is a really, really big one. And I think that that's very apparent in the discourse we have um, in uh, currently around um, race in the public arena. Um, in the way that, you know, the objective is to kind of present yourself as sort of uh, be beyond that, you know, like, yeah. of course yeah. I'm not racist. And I think that the royal family have, have tried really hard to sort of um, skip the introspective stage, if I want, if you could, mm -hmm. if I could call it that. I think they want to go from, you know, uh, you know, nothing. Oh, God, there's issues being raised about us being problematic, <laughs> not racist. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, between this bit and that bit, yeah, yeah, there's a yeah. whole load of work that needs to happen. Yeah, and yeah. and and they're like, no, 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 no. Can we just jump to, yeah, to the last yeah. bit? Oh man, um, totally. It's process. Yeah, and and that process has been absent. Um, I, I want it before we talk about um Meghan and Harry, which obviously we have to because of the Netflix series and everything mm. else that's going. I wanted to ask you, um, I really wanted to ask you about this musical history of Black Britain, which you uh, wrote and which, um, you know, I was actually listening, going through the tracks um, uh, before we started to listen to some of them. And um, I, I, I firstly loved the idea because of something we just touched on now, which is that um, history isn't just written in books by men. There are so many ways that culture and history are written and overlooked as well. Mm -hmm. And so I just love that idea of using music as this kind of capsule of history yeah. and culture that you could kind of immerse people in, in a way that, you know, and I love books, but like a book isn't going to do that for you. Like yeah. A, yeah. a music video that you watch takes you back to an era. It takes you back to a mood, all of the codes in the video, mm -hmm. you know, London in the, in the eighties. Like, yeah. you know, I, I mean, yeah. I didn't know, I didn't know it like that, but I'm watching it thinking, wow, this is just, um, this is a history lesson in yeah. music. And, and so, yeah, I just wanted to ask you about that. Where was, you know, what was your thinking behind uh, writing it through these songs? And why did you want to share these songs, I guess? Yeah, I think that subconsciously, I knew that music as a medium was, was a cheat code that allows you to swim in history in the way that you've just described. So music sort of throws you into an era, into a moment, in a way which is completely accessible, because you don't need to, under, it's a universally understandable language, music. Um, and when you go slightly wider into the context of a particular song or era or artist, that context is completely encapsulated within that piece of music. And so you can be in an era you can be in a political mindset you can be in a moment in history just by accessing the music of that time but then music is this also is this weird kind of you know you've got like three dimensions you know like the fourth dimension is music because it is intergenerational in a way that 
a lot of art forms obviously are, but in music you can hear it. The lineages are so definable, you know. So you hear a song and you can point to where it's come from. You can point to the genre. You can point to what inspired it. So it's an intergenerational conversation. Now, for a lot of marginalised groups, our narratives or the narratives of marginalised groups are completely kind of non-formalized like they're they're not written they're not ensconced into the curriculum they're not heralded and rolled out year in year out in the way that mainstream narratives dominant narratives are you know so music becomes this place where marginalized narratives can not only be celebrated but they can be they can be accessed on an academic level they can be accessed on a cultural political level and that is that's a curriculum which is so important. And when I thought back to my own childhood, when I thought about musical truth, well, what's, what's it going to be? What's going to have in it? I realised that all these songs were part of a curriculum in Black British identity that I didn't realise I was living while I was growing up. That's crazy. And a lot of these songs predate me by decades. And yet they're of my lived experience too, because... I enjoyed them with my sisters, with my friends and so on. So it's like, so it's like, it's this very refreshing and honest um, kind of antithesis to a mainstream dominant narrative, but you can celebrate it as well. It's resistance, it's oppression, it's conflict, it's pain. A lot of these songs are full of pain and trauma, but they're celebration at the same time, which is often why they get commodified. And also what I love is that a lot of this music you know, you're talking about blackness in particular, whatever you think blackness is, blackness has been commodified by whiteness for as long as these two concepts have, have existed because there's something appealing about the illicitness of blackness. Youth culture and black culture have been interlinked arm in arm for as long as teenagers have existed since the 1950s, be it rock and roll or UK drill, take your pick. So that as well speaks to the energy because that's what I like about people. I like, I went into teaching for a reason. Kids are cool, man, because kids have got this energy, this appetite for exploring the world, which you often find in music. Like most people when they were young were into music that their parents disapproved of. And most of that music has got a link to black America in a lot of the time, but sometimes just like, just kind of like non-white, you know, um, kind of cultural art forms. So, I'm tapping into that when I look at music and I kind of package it up in this playlist of songs. It's quite a lot, but um, but it gives the book a lot of energy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it makes the um, the fact that you can kind of flip between these songs, which also, by the way, have incredible music videos, right? I mean, yeah. they're like, you know, the, yeah, the, the music videos themselves are just time capsules. But I was wondering, like, it must be... Um, to, to me, um, and, and I think this is like a, it, anyone who is bicultural or tricultural or has more than one culture will relate, I think, to having an understanding of the world through the cultural references of that part of you, that mainstream culture just doesn't understand. And 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 I, and, and so, but, but it's such a, a, a wealth in many ways. And, and that's the maddest thing, right? Mm. So is it, it's this wealth of kind of knowledge because within the music is, is I mean, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say within the music is philosophy, within the music is 
you know, lessons about love and life and, Mm -hmm. you know, history and resistance. And so it's like, you know, you have these individuals growing up with a whole part of the black British experience, which is the British experience, completely denied or known to another part of Britain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think that that's where, um, you know, if you look at the word advantage, being being not of the dominant mainstream being not censored is an advantage it gives you a vantage point marginalized is such a tricky word because it suggests that you're on the edge of something i'm not on the edge of anything we talk, i'm right in the middle of where i am trust me and i'm actually way above like i can see this stuff from outside from without i never want to be centered which is why i challenge the things that center me you know being heterosexual being able-bodied being male being British all these things that center me those are the things that I challenge because I don't want to because when you're censored there are things that are deliberately straightjacketing you and when you're not censored you can see the situation for what it is yeah it comes with trauma it becomes with difficulty but I wouldn't change it for a thing and this is why the books that I write the people that are doing similar things that I'm doing you with this podcast it's an act of benevolence. It is an act of absolute kindness to invite people to have a perspective that the levers of like power have denied you if you're centered. Someone like Jeremy Clarkson, like what? Like to be so centered in your power and privilege that you can't see the way that you have been victimized by these corrupt, rotten ideologies. That is, it's tragic. It's, you know, it's sad. And and it's it's an interesting, um, so Jeremy Clarkson obviously has been in the headlines here in the UK um, for some of the listeners who might not be from the UK recently because of some pretty horrific comments that he made about Meghan Markle, Mm. um, essentially uh, saying that he wanted to see her, um, you know, parade naked through the streets with people throwing things at her, right? Throwing excrement at her, yeah. Throwing, yeah, well, there you go, throwing throwing, uh, excrement at her. So, um, and obviously, um, this being the UK, that was turned into a debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I say that in all irony. Yeah, yeah, crazy. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, and so, yeah, I mean, on on the Jeremy Clarkson note, but also on these kind of this generation of um, white men who are mm-hmm. in positions of power in particular. But but this can be true of a much wider segment of people as well. But this idea that you. Uh, have nothing to learn from mm. somebody sharing their experience, that there is a lack of humility vis-a-vis your own positionality, that, you yeah. know, somebody can come to you and say, this is my experience of the world, and you can turn around and say, who gives a, I won't swear, yeah. but, you know, like, the, you know, you're talking crap, but it's like, well, how, what, what have you, what Kool-Aid have you been drinking that makes you think it's okay to diminish and dismiss the experience of people who don't look and sound like you. And I'm going to suggest that's the Kool-Aid of whiteness, but I'd be really interested to hear maybe beyond whiteness, what you look at as being the root of some of the most kind of vitriolic um, Mm. discourse, because some of it has been really intense here in the UK. I think we think of racism as like a very... US thing, people getting shot and, mm-hmm. you know, people dying in police custody, which also happens here. But 
Um, what do you make of the current discourse on race here in the UK? I feel like it's incredibly defensive and insecure and fragile. Um, and those things make it brittle. And that means that people become brittle. It means that they're hard, but they're easily shattered. Because um, when, when, you are, when you are brittle, you can't withstand any pressure. So whiteness, you know, white Britishness, as kind of, you know, in many ways, it's um, encapsulated by the monarchy, which is one of the most whitest, most British things ever, is incredibly brittle. The moment pressure is applied upon it and its centeredness is like shaken or challenged, it just shatters. And these voices, the Jeremy Clarksons, the Piers Morgans, the people that say these things and have this vitriolic and beyond that, the the real like nasty kind of, you know, moving further right, you know, voices. Um, it's coming from a place of deep insecurity and a very, very tragic commitment to these ideologies like white supremacy, like dominant masculinity, like, you know, class, you know, like um, heteronormativity, like the commitment to those ideologies because the fear of themselves being taken apart leads these voices and these people to become to become actively dangerous and it is dangerous this is what makes white supremacy dangerous the concept of white supremacy in itself is not dangerous it's just an idea which you can discuss dismiss and move on but the active commitment to it makes the world a dangerous place and beyond that the really dangerous thing is the kind of like the invitation for people who are racialized as white to accept this as a fact of reality. You know, when Galileo, whatever, you know, challenged the accepted notion that the earth was not the center of the universe, when he said that the earth couldn't be the center of the universe, he was going to get killed. You know, it was decades until that idea that we are a rock going around a sun of which there are many stars became accepted. That's because the idea that you can shake accepted notions of reality, I don't think people understand just how scary that is for your average person. I am ready to shake accepted notions of reality any given moment because my existence has been a shake of accepted notions of reality. I'm a black boy in this country that has had to prosper against odds that statistically you know, statistically, like my fates are quite tragic. So I'm sitting here now as an exception. A lot of black people, we are extraordinary. You know, people that have made it through the horrors of decades, centuries long racism and continue to just live and exist. Like it's extraordinary. So I'm not committed to the realities of the world that they've been presented to me. Are you crazy? I'm making my own reality, which is probably why I've got a CV of like six books and counting. It's like it's over the top. But, <laughs> you know, but I feel like that's the thing which is um, that's the thing which is which is most worrying for me, that until that commitment to these ideologies is relinquished, these problems are not going to go away. Yes, well, on that note, one of the things that comes up a lot, as you would imagine, on this podcast is the question of incentives 
for people in dominant position because obviously within whiteness people hold different positions right I mean not everyone has equal power within whiteness we know this um what some some people who've come on feel that you know uh there are no incentives for white people to challenge whiteness um others kind of take a different view where would you stand on that I, I mean, you know, it's 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 a it's a difficult conversation because I, obviously, if I'm sat here in front of you, is that I mm. obviously believe there are very strong incentives to challenge whiteness. I mean, I I think that I actually think the conversation of asking for incentives is a dehumanizing question in some ways, in and of itself. You know, it's like asking why would white people want a fairer world? Why would white people want a just mm. system well because injustice anywhere is a challenge to justice everywhere like yeah. to me it's fairly obvious but I do understand that that a lot of people including campaigners in this field mm. say to me you know why would white people want to actually pu- pull down the system that gives them power yeah yeah it's a I feel like to me that raises another question which is which is um which is quite profound is that it's it's about what do you personally kind of stand to lose as a human being by not making these efforts going forward um which sounds it almost sounds a bit cheesy but to me that's that's the bottom line um the status quo is like people think it works for them whilst they're suffering from it mad you know so people assume it's working for them whilst they're victims of it if you look at our consumer habits as a species you know in the west it's horrific it actually should keep us all up at night and thankfully we're starting to push back on it you know a little bit you know you can't just like buy clothes made by poor people over there in unsustainable ways and then buy more and like use water and it's like what it's in a hundred years time hopefully my kids kids will look back and go you guys were animals um because it's monstrous behavior so it's about being good to yourself if you're being really kind to yourself you'd want you to be the best version of yourself and you'd want you to be the best steward of the world that you live in but people are kind of happy enough with their lot you know like happy enough to just be in a world where they can earn a bit of money and have their family and not worry about the inequalities that don't affect them and my most benevolent um actually not even my most benevolent someone that i've connected with over the years um spoken to a few times doreen lawrence Stephen Lawrence, 1993, her firstborn son, murdered in a racialized attack, right? Called the N-word, boom, stabbed. At that point, Doreen Lawrence is a grieving mother. Then she becomes a campaigner for justice. She didn't want that. She was 39, as younger than I am now. And she has pushed so hard to effect positive change, not just for her and her family, for society, you know, for justice. When she's speaks now she talks about you know these three c's classroom communities careers the stephen lawrence foundation is about improving society that's so benevolent because actually that's helping out even the people that perpetrated this horrendous crime against her and her family 
And at my most benevolent, when I try to think like her, you think, what went wrong for those babies that grew up into racist thugs that stabbed an 18-year-old like, young man in London? That's a tragedy. I teach kids. And if any of the kids that I taught over the last 15 years grew up to stab someone in a racialized attack, my heart would break because something's gone wrong for them. And that's what's at stake. We're all babies. What? No one was around in 1661. Like, are you crazy? Like, no one's old. This, like, idea that... Jeremy Clarkson said it, people my age think the same. It's, it's like, such BS. Like, what do you mean people your age? No one's old, mate. Like, you know, <laughs> you're a baby too. And so, with that hat on, it's just like, we got we got to do this for our babies. <laughs> you know, we, we have to we have to make it so that they aren't victims of these horrible things and they don't perpetrate these things that are destroying their souls. That's how I see it. That's a a beautiful note. Thank you um, for that. I mean, I think we could, we could talk a long, uh, a lot longer on all of these things, but I do want to get round to the quick fire round. So if you're ready, it looks like you're prepped. Um, Here we go. So quick fire questions with quick fire responses. Okay. What, is your definition of whiteness? Oh, whiteness is gravity. What is the root of racism? Greed. What does racial justice look like? Racial justice, racial justice looks, like looks like the people who are fighting for it not having to fight anymore. What is one thing you wish all white people understood? That whiteness is not intrinsically part of them. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal achievable or even desirable? Uh, No, no and no. We have race and we have these wonderful spread of cultures and those things can coexist and we just need to invite each other into each other's kitchens more. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes, because it's all about whiteness. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, that's our quick fire round. Thank (laughs) you. That was tough. (laughs) (laughs) I said it would be easy, didn't I? I said it would be, you know, choosing between Coke and Pepsi. So they have it. It was a a quick and easy multiple choice there. Um, Well, look, thank you once again for taking the time. If people want to kind of catch up with you, your work and what you do, where's the place to find out more about what you're up to? Yeah, um, I suppose uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm in that playground every now and again. Jeffrey K. Boachi at Twitter. That's probably the best place to see what's going on. But also just, um, just... rocking with my books you know I'm writing a lot of them I've, I've got many more in the pipeline a few coming out in the next couple of years and um, they're for all ages and stuff so it's just great to connect that way because that's where you really get a sense of 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 what I'm trying to achieve and and that's where I'm trying to share as benevolently as I can so yeah and on the radio as well tune in BBC Radio 4 Ads Playlist it's a good show Fantastic. All right. Well, Jeffrey Boracci, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you very much.